Well, as we get started, I wanted to alert you to an opportunity. Um, we have a sister church that is going to be looking at starting a chapter of what's called Immigrant Hope. Immigrant Hope is helping people who are in the United States navigate the often difficult and complex journey towards citizenship. It's a ministry that comes out of the church. It was actually started by a friend of mine as part of our group of churches, the Free Church. And it's been so successful that other denominations have been asking, and and we've been working with other denominations to help them get similar things started. Uh, And I just wonder if maybe one of you has had a growing interest in a ministry like this, and maybe this is the spark that you need to get involved. Um, You know, our vision is Church Unleashed, and that means this, that it's a recognition that every single person is called to some sort of ministry, right? It's great that, you know, we have greeters and people doing setup and so thankful for the people on sound. And, and that's a really important part of who we are, but it's not everything. Those are kind of like chores around the house in some respect. God has called each person of faith to something more wonderful and dramatic than that even, to be an ambassador for Christ. And oftentimes it's sort of the same people who end up doing the the things over and over again. Maybe some of you who haven't been in the game and, you know, you're interested in figuring out how to get involved in ministry, this could be the exact thing that could really spark your interest. So I just want to invite you, uh, if you are interested, Miguel is the one who's leading worship. Miguel is the one who leads up our Agape teams, and I want to encourage you to talk to him. We'll connect you with this other sister church in San Leandro, and maybe something will happen. And if nothing happens, that's fine too. Um, But I want to be obedient to the Holy Spirit, the way that God orchestrates the church, and maybe just maybe somebody's being called to this particular ministry. Now, bring it up today because it is related to our topic. Immigration is related to our topic. Today we're going to be talking about a kind of a, I guess you could call it a little bit of a subset of immigration or the other side of immigration, which is the sense of exile. We're going to be talking about spiritual exile today. But I always love when we talk about these spiritual things, if there's a way that we can connect in and address the physical needs that go along with it. We talked about this with respect to slavery in the very beginning of this series, that, you know, there's more people in slavery today than at any other time in the history of the world. And so as we talk about being freed from spiritual slavery, we also ought to consider what it means to help people who are in actual slavery get freed. So this is a similar kind of a, a dynamic for me with this. Now, what is uh, spiritual exile? To be in exile is to be barred from one's native country. It's to be scattered. It's to be disconnected. It's to be dislodged. And it's to be homeless. And I love what um, Bilbo says in uh, The Lord of the Rings, in The Hobbit. He's far from his beloved home and weighed down by unimaginable stresses. And um, he says this. He says, I feel thin sort of stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. Now, Bilbo's not technically in exile, but he's got that experience of being dislodged, of being apart from his home. And I just love that simile that Tolkien gives us, that concept of being like butter stretched over too much bread. 
This is the experience that we have spiritually as human beings in a world that isn't yet what we were meant for. To some degree, we all struggle with a sense of spiritual exile. The world's kind of like a piece of clothing that doesn't quite fit or hang on us properly. Recently, I bought a pair of shoes, and I think they were the wrong size, and I kept trying to wear them. And we would, you know, my wife and I love, that's how we hang out. We go out on these long walks, you know, five miles or something. And, uh, you know, I kept, I wear these shoes, and I come back, and my feet would just be wrecked. But I kept trying, kept trying. Finally, I just had to give them away. They just chafed. I, I had a pair of, I, I bought some thermals a while back because we were going to somewhere cold. And I decided to get a small because I thought it would be under all of my other clothing and I wanted it to be nice and snug. Well, I don't fit a small, apparently, because uh, everywhere I would be, I'd be feeling like I couldn't breathe because this thing was constricting me. I bought a pair of sweats a while back. And they were too long. And every Sabbath, I would get up and put on my sweats. And they'd be dragging on the floor and be tripping over my sweats. This world is like clothing that doesn't quite fit properly on us. It just doesn't hang right. It chafes. It constricts. It's uncomfortable. And we've all had that experience. And we continue to have it. And I've even been in the midst, and maybe this describes you as well, of the highest of times when there's incredible joy and fellowship and abundance. And right there in those moments when everything is, is seemingly so right, I'll have a sense of darkness or, or shadow, right, that accompanies it. What is that about? Why does that happen? The answer is because we're not home yet. We're living in exile. These feelings of exile can be the beginning of a desperate search. And, you know, we long to fill the hole, to fill the void in us. We run to different comforts, to our careers, to maybe exercising as much control as we can over our world, to, to success, to material things, to substances at times, to unhealthy relationships, to sex, and the list could go on and on, all in an attempt to cover over the void we experience within us. And I want to propose to you this morning, as we get into our passages, that if you have feelings of exile... You're actually normal. And I want to propose to you, I want to show you from the Bible why that is. And I want to hopefully help prevent you from going to the unhealthy things to fill the hole. Because, right, you know the story. You know how we run to these other things to fill the hole, the gap, the spiritual loss, the spiritual emptiness. We run to these other things, and we think at first that they're going to fulfill our deepest longings, only to find that not only do they fail to fill our deepest longings, but they end up wrecking our lives as well. In the spiritual, in the biblical talk, we call these things idols. And one of the things about idols is that they always promise high and deliver low. They promise high and they deliver low. 
This is our fifth week in this series, and each time we're looking at a key moment, one of the mountaintop moments of the Old Testament. We're understanding the physical dynamics of that usually, although there's always a spiritual component to it as well. And then we're carrying that forward to the New Testament to see how in the New Testament... The issue, the subject that was raised in the Old Testament but left somewhat fulfilled but not fully becomes fully fulfilled in the New Testament, both in its physical and in spiritual entailments. We've been looking, we began with the Garden of Eden and the the need for us to be redeemed. Uh, We looked at the Exodus and that sense of enslavement and the freedom that comes first of all for the Israelites as they leave Egypt and then for us in the New Testament as Jesus goes through his Exodus and carries us along with him. We looked at the priest, we've looked at several, and today we finish looking at what is called the exile. So let's dive in, open your Bibles, we're going to understand what the exile is, and then we're going to hopefully pull out some helpful spiritual lessons for all of us. So last week we explored uh, how uh, when Israel came into the land that they had been given, they, they left Egypt They went through the Red Sea, that's the Exodus, they wandered in the wilderness, and they finally came into the land. They continued to struggle because the people weren't also living the command of God. They had the land, but not in obedience to the command. And so uh, it caused problems. Everyone was doing what they thought was right in their own mind. So they asked for a king, and eventually they got a king named David, and uh, David was a foreshadowing of a greater king who was to come, and that was the story of last week. Now, if we jumped then from that to the New Testament, we talked about Jesus as the fulfillment of the king that we all need. If we would have stayed in the Old Testament and we would have continued the story forward from David and Solomon, what we would have seen is a sad and tragic loss for the nation of Israel Uh, While Israel did relatively well under David and Solomon, um, they continued to descend into unfaithfulness to God over the course of almost 350 years. And what did that look like? That looked like idolatry. So I named for you in my introduction some of the ways that we're tempted towards idolatry. Um, We don't typically find ourselves tempted to worship a a statue of another God, which is sort of the physical, obvious, Old Testament form of idolatry. Um, But in the Old Testament, there were other gods that were worshipped, and Israel was was giving themselves over to the worship of other gods, uh, breaking the Ten Commandments in doing that, just like we can do as, as we order our lives around something that is not God. That's what idolatry is in our context to worship, to order our existence around something that is not God. They, When they were worshiping, they didn't bring their best. They bought, brought blemished sacrifices. And so they might not bring the lamb that was without blemish, which was what they were called to do. They would bring the one who was maybe the runt of the lot. 
and God was calling them out for their failure in worship. And, and, and likewise, we can do the same thing. When we come to worship God, we cannot bring our best, but give him the leftovers of our lives rather than giving him the primary element of who we are, what's most dear and important to us. And that touches every aspect of our being. There was corruption in Israel. There was murder. There was injustice. There was failure to care for the least of these, the least among them. Over and over in the Old Testament, there is this call to care for the least of these. And I just have to give a shout out to, I think, 34 of you who last night were at the Bay Area Rescue Mission serving until late in the night. Um, I saw pictures. I didn't get the update from my wife because I was in bed by the time she got home. Um, but I saw photos this morning, and it just and I've heard stories from some of you who are there. And what a beautiful thing to be at the Bay Area Rescue Mission, caring for the least of these. Those are, this is what the people of God are supposed to do, and and we fail at times. Last night we celebrate that there was a moment of success in that, and Israel failed. They were failing to take care of the least among them, and. So God sent all kinds of prophets to Israel to call them back to the command, to call them back to the vision that God had given them for how life in the land was supposed to be lived. And you look at your Old Testament and you read through the prophets and, and, and you may have had this experience where you feel like, boy, they're just saying the same thing over and over again and, and they're being... The, the, the prophets is, are, are chastising them for the same sins, and it, it just seems like this repetition over and over again. And if you've tried to read through your Bible, you've tried to read through the Old Testament, maybe you, you had a moment where you just wanted to give up because it just went on and on and on. And I want to remind you that the reason that the Old Testament is so long is because God's patience is so long. Because he sends prophet after prophet after prophet to call the people back to faithfulness. So you ever think about why is the Old Testament so long and so hard to get through? Because God loves you so much. I've been saying this throughout the course of this, that, you know, the Old Testament sometimes is intimidating to us. The actual storyline of it is not all that complicated. You know, I said last week, if you can understand some of the things that we're watching, movies or, or TVs, you can understand the flow of the Old Testament. You really can. It's much less intense and complicated than that. Well, I don't know. It's, it's equal. But it's understandable. God gives us what we can understand. And once you do, you will understand how the same story is being told from all different kinds of angles and unfold in all of its richness and its depth. And this is what we're invited into um, as, we, as we look through the Old Testament and the, and the length of it and the patience of God as it unfolds over time. But there is a moment with God's relationship with Israel where he finally says it's enough. He says enough. Look, some of us have a hard time with that moment. But we need to connect it to what we've experienced in life. Maybe you've got a family member or somebody close to you who you have loved and sacrificed for and given to. And there came a moment in that relationship where you realized that by continuing down this path, you were just enabling them to do more and more harm to themselves. And so you had to say, enough, right? I need to take a different approach in this relationship. And that's the framework within which I understand this really poignant moment in God's relationship with the people of Israel. He says, enough. 
You continue to run away from me. I've given you the land, but you're not following the command. And it's enough. After sending all those prophets, after all those repeated prophecies that you slog through in your Old Testament, he says, it's enough. And here's how it comes to us in the book of Jeremiah. If you have your Bible open to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13, we're also going to be putting it on the screen or put, bring it up on your phone or somewhere where maybe you can do some highlighting and such. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13. And the Lord says, Because they, Israel, have forsaken my law that I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals, that's a, a set of gods that would make manifest that idolatry that I spoke of, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food and give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter, that's a a word of exile, right? I will scatter them among the nations whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And we have this same event described in different places in the Old Testament. And so if you would turn back to Second Chronicles 36, verse, 13, verse 13, 17, excuse me, we'll read um, how it's described in one of the historical books. So we have the prophetic books and we have the historical books. And here's a, a more historical description of what then happened. Therefore, he, the Lord, brought up against them Israel, the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. That's the temple. We're going to talk a lot about the temple. And had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave them all into his hand and all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord. Whenever you see that house of God, we're talking about the temple at that point. The treasures of the house of the Lord. They had all these implements that were made out of gold, beautiful implements. And the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. So this invader came and took all of these elements away to Babylon. And they burned the house of God, the temple, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile, there's that word, in Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. To fulfill the word of the Lord, the word of enough, by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. And flipping back to Jeremiah chapter 9, where we were, you will see what follows as the sort of the emotional component of this exile that takes place with the people of Israel. Verse 17, continuing on that passage, God says through Jeremiah, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women to come, send for the skillful women to come. Uh, In the day of the Old Testament, the days of the Old Testament, 
um, they had a deep understanding of what it meant to lament and to mourn a particular tra tragedy or loss. Uh, and there were actually people within the community who were charged with leading the lament process, the grieving process. And there were norms about how you did that. And you recognized a moment of tragedy and you called the mourners in to lead the process of grieving. And this is a really important dynamic of what it means to be a human being, to be able to grieve and lament. And we don't often do that well. I don't know if that's a function of, of Western church or Western society. I think there's a, a movement to recapture some of this. Um, and I just want to point, we're going we're gonna to move into this in an interesting way in this next series. On your chair, there is a card which invites you to sort of connect with, with what we're talking about here over the losses and the griefs that you've experienced throughout this last season. As we think about these last years and the pandemic and all the other things associated with it, uh, or just your own individual life and the losses you've incurred, um, we as a people aren't called by God to turn a blind eye to that, but to enter into it, to see what God's redemptive work would be in the midst of it. And so, um, as we lean towards next Sunday in the next series, I invite you to read that card. Pastor Paul is going to share a little bit at the end of today about that and to begin to just engage your heart with the mourners in a sense, just as we see here in Jeremiah 9, verse 17, what I just read. Verse 18, let them, the mourners, make haste and raise a wailing over us that our eyes may run down with tears and our eyelids flow with water. For a sound of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are ruined. We are utterly shamed because we have left the land. We'll get back to why the land is so important. Because they've cast down our dwellings. In other words, they're scattered. They're exiled. They're homeless. Hear, O women, the word of the Lord, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach to your daughters a lament, and each to her neighbor a dirge. For death has come into our windows, it has entered our palaces, cutting off the children from the streets and the young men from the squares. Speak, thus declares the Lord, the dead bodies of men shall fall like dung upon the field. If, if, if you've been around a farm where there's cattle, the dung is replete across the field, right? And so that's the point, is that they'll be everywhere. Like sheaves after the reaper, and none shall gather them. We're talking about scattering, and we're talking about gathering today both of those in this passage. Scattered, exiled, homeless. And a word about why it was so important to Israel to be in the land. From the mindset of an Old Testament person, the land was home because the land was the center, because at the center of the land was the temple. The land was home because at the center of the land was the temple. And the temple was important because it was the place of God's presence. The temple was divided into various 
parts. There was the outer court where Gentiles, everybody could come. And then there was the, the court where the sacrifices took place. And then there was the holy place, which had the candles and sort of represented uh, the, the, the physical land. And then inside, in the innermost part, was the, what's called the Holy of Holies which was a representation of the spiritual realm, and, and they understood that God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And for an Old Testament person, for the Israelite, home wasn't even so much a place as it was about the proximity to the temple. No matter where you were in Israel, you went up to the temple because it was on a mountain. And they often referred to the temple as the mount because, because you always went up. And there was this beautiful sense that whenever I'm going up to the temple, I'm going up to the presence of God. And the closer I am to the temple, the more I am gathered and not scattered. So for an Israelite to be cast away from the land was to be cast away from the presence of of God in that sense. And it's no different today. Home for you and home for me is not so much a physical place. Home has to do with the presence of God. You could be on the top of Mount Everest, but if you were in intimacy with the Lord, that would be home. Now, there's a physical element there about freezing to death, but we're not getting into that. Uh, home is the presence of God. We sometimes mistake that and we search for, we search for home in all, the, all these wrong kind of places. We think that if, if we're in comfort and control, then, then that's, that's home. But ultimately, ultimate home is the presence of God. So with that understanding of the exile and the background and the importance of the temple, we now move to the New Testament to talk about the gathering. Now, the regathering of, of Israel in the land was already prophesied in the book of Jeremiah. So turn over to Jeremiah 29, if you're flipping around in your Bible or you're on your device. And listen to these words, starting in verse 10, which to me are some of the most powerful and wonderful words in the Old Testament. Just about every phrase in here you could take home and, and spend a week with. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed. Remember in the Second Chronicles passage, it said this was going to take place for 70 years. So, so this is what's going to happen next. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, God says, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes. And what? Gather you 
from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Well, that happened. And you can look in the book of Ezra to have it described for you. They were brought back. They rebuilt the wall and Nehemiah and Ezra, the temple. But there's a sense in which the Old Testament promise here, the Jeremiah promise, is still not quite fulfilled. Yes, they're physically back in the land, but spiritually, it's not quite all there yet. And to me, this is where the story gets kind of amazing. Keep in mind the concept of the temple, which is the presence of God. When you hear temple, when you read temple, and there are a lot of different terms that refer to the temple. Sometimes it's just the mount. Sometimes it's, it's the house of God. Sometimes it's the tent, because that was the, that was the temple before they had the, 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 the stone version of it. When they were wandering in the wilderness, they had the tabernacle, the tent. That's the temple. So these are all, hold these in your mind. They're all the same thing, right? Um, so keep in mind the concept of the temple, which is the presence of God. The temple now is going to, in the New Testament, is going to be on the move. The temple's going to be on the move. And I want you to trace this with me for a second. Step one, turn over to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. This is, this is in, the, in the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. The Passover of the, over of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. See, you always go up. In the temple... He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned the table, their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, reference to Jesus and his action here. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them. Here's where it gets crazy. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The temple just became Jesus. God with us. Right? What do we say the temple is? It's the presence of God. Gets weirder. Step two. So that's step one. Step two, after Jesus' resurrection, we start seeing verses and descriptions like this in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Paul, writing to the church, says, Do you not know that you, and we don't have an ability to say this in English, so I'll just use the best we have. Do y'all not know that y'all, because it's plural, are God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you. 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Uh Uh-oh, the temple just moved to the church. The presence of God in the church. It's not like one random little verse. You could go, we we, we, we studied this earlier in 1 Peter. You know, the living stones. What are the living stones? They're they're, they're not stone stones anymore. They're living stones, which is you and me. The temple now is the people of God, the church, and the stones are the unique individuals that we all are, and we're living. Ephesians 2 talks about the same thing. So 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, this whole temple, church as temple thing is developed. And it gets weirder. Step 3. Turn with me all the way over to the book of Revelation, chapter 21. I didn't want to say weirder. I want to say more wonderful, actually. Chapter 21, and uh, verse 1. And I think maybe this is the passage that I have read more than any other publicly in this congregation over the last 17 years. I'm proud of that. Chapter 21 in the book of Revelation. And those of you who are exploring the things of the faith, the book of Revelation is, a, is, is um, uh, an articulation of a vision given to John which describes heaven. And we refer to it oftentimes as the new heaven and the new earth. Because when we, when we think of heaven, we shorthand say heaven, but oftentimes what comes in our head where disembodied souls float on clouds playing harps or something, right? This is the caricature we have of heaven. But in the Bible, the new heaven and the new earth is actually a physical place. More physical even, more real, more wonderful, more vibrant than the world that we know. This is just a, this, this world is like a little a little taste of what the new heaven and the new earth will be. And when we get there and look back at this world, it'll be by like looking back at a shadow. That's how this world will seem in relation to the vibrancy and the wonder and the glory of that world. And John in the book of Revelation is articulating that vision. And so he says, then I saw, he's just saying what he saw. I saw in verse one, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride and adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, The dwelling place of God is with man, human beings. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them, emphasis, as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. Skip down to verse 22. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. Uh Uh-oh. I thought temple was supposed to be where God is, right? What's going to happen if there's no temple? I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun 
or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there, and, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who has done what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now the temple is the new Jerusalem. And if we had time to go back and read the paragraph before that, what we would see is something really interesting about the new Jerusalem, that it is... 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide, and 12,000 stadia high. Now that is equivalent to about 1,400 miles each. But what's strange about it is that it's a cube. How can a city be a cube? Why would a city be a cube? Because it's the Holy of Holies, which is a cube, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. That's the Holy of Holies. And the New Jerusalem is the Holy of Holies on a cosmic scale. Somebody came to me after worship last service and said, the space station is 254 miles above Earth. The New Jerusalem is 1,400 miles tall. And even that's just figurative language to try to, get, to help us get our minds around something totally awesome and cosmic and, and, and wonderful, right? And now I'm going to push it to one other level that's even more amazing to me. You see, as we are seeking to draw near to the temple, to be gathered to the temple, there are signs throughout Scripture that God is causing the temple to expand outward, to encompass us. So we want to be gathered because home is proximity to God. And we want to be gathered. We want to be close. And so we're trying to go up to the mountain. But at the same time, the mountain is expanding. There's a a number of different ways this is talked about, even beginning in the Old Testament. Um, The tent pegs of are expanded outwards. The tent is enlarged to cover the nations. Or the mount of God in the book of Daniel grows to cover the whole earth. There's only one way to make sense out of that strange imagery that God, while we're trying to come near the temple, that actually the temple, God is expanding out to include us, to encompass us. It works both ways. So, so when, when we experience exile in this world, it's incredibly important for us to, to nest that experience within the larger picture of what God is doing. When we, feel, when we experience spiritual emptiness, we experience that longing and that loss, it's incredibly important for us to nest that within a deeper, broader understanding of what God is doing eternally. A couple of applications as we finish up around that. 
Don't be surprised by how scattered you sometimes feel. Don't be surprised by how scattered you sometimes feel. It's part of what it means to be a human being. That sense of desolation, that sense of homelessness, that sense of isolation. It's part of what it means to be a human being. And you know, some of us are a little bit more prone to tap into that feeling, you know, maybe more poetic types. Um, it's more resonant to us on a daily basis. Um, I, w- I was thinking of Vincent Van Gogh and, you know, the, the history, the story of, of the life of Vincent Van Gogh and um, probably one of the first songs that ever really brought me to tears and wrecked me when I was a kid. I was, I was like eight or nine or something. Was that Don McLean song um, called Vincent? It makes me emotional just to think about it. It's so weird. That line where he says, I could have told you, Vincent, that this world was never meant for one as beautiful as you just captures that experience that we all have, right? This is, this, we're not there yet. This isn't the world that we were intended for. Some of us are on the other end of the scale where like we, we try to run away from that feeling whenever it might start to show its face in our lives. And so we cover over and we try to, you know, we try to, we try to evade any experience of exile and we distract ourselves. And I think what, what God would have us do, his purpose is not for us to make an idol out of that sense of exile. In other words, to nurture, to nurture it in an unhealthy way, nor are we to pretend that it's not there. Instead, He has purposes for the exile experience in our lives. So many. We don't have time to unfold them all. But isn't it wonderful that God gives us enough of a taste to be able to begin to dream about what heaven would be like and also enough enough of a taste of this world to know that we're not there yet. And so what we need to do is to turn the exile to our advantage. And that's the next application. There's a whole theme in the Bible about wilderness and what it means to be in the wilderness and how important it is to our spiritual development that we have seasons of being in the wilderness. This is just part of, of life. And we can turn these wilderness moments into our advantage by waiting and looking for how God wants to grow us. I know it hurts. I know it's painful. I know you wish you weren't in it when you're in it. But there is something the Lord is doing in the midst of it. And our job is to look for that. That's what he wants to bring out of it. We were having staff development day this week on Tuesday. And we were just having this wonderful conversation. And Terry, our administrator, we have the most incredible staff. It's really amazing. Um, just so blessed. Like, really be thankful. I'm getting emotional again. But Terry brought this great analogy. She was talking about trees. She'd seen a tree with its leaves off. And she was saying how um, it's interesting because 
trees on the East Coast go through a proper cycle of the seasons. And trees on the West Coast, you know, especially if they're intended for those cycles, they don't go through those proper cycles because we don't really have the seasons on the, in, in, in the way that they do on the West Coast. And then she made this point. She said, the trees that go through the proper cycle end up living longer than the trees that don't. Now, that is interesting to me because it suggests, as we're talking about what we're talking about today, that perhaps some of these moments of exile are integral parts of our own growth and health and development and fortitude and strengthening and life and knowledge of God and all of that, right? That's an important framework to hold in our minds as we enter into these moments. And then my last one is this, is that in all things move towards the temple, even as the temple is moving towards you. Jesus is drawing near to you. The temple is drawing near to you. Move towards the temple. In the language of the Old Testament, you've got tent, temple, Jesus, church, new heaven, right? Write those down. Tent, temple, Jesus, church, new heaven and earth, new Jerusalem. These are all part of the same message of the presence of God. And what you want to do as a human being to find yourself at home is to move towards the temple. That's what it's about. Move towards the temple. Learn the Old Testament. Like I said before, you can do it. You can learn the Old Testament. Learn the Old Testament so you've got this in your head. Draw near to Jesus. Any of you who are in exploratory phase with your spiritual life right now, you're, you're intrigued by these things, but you haven't made a commitment, I want you to know that the commitment starts with Jesus. Jesus is a Savior. He is the Savior, and He is Lord. And the way that you draw near to God, the initial step you take, the most important step you take, is a step of faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Savior meaning He addresses your sin, and Lord, He kicks out your idols and becomes the main part of your worship. Okay? So that's the beginning point. Draw, but then we keep drawing near to Jesus. There isn't a thing that I've been able to find that I've experienced in this life that Jesus didn't also experience. Oftentimes to a much higher degree. And every time I put myself, draw near to Jesus. Fellowship with the church. Fellowship with the church. That This is the, the temple of God. As homely as we seem most of the time, right? This is the temple of the Lord. And so, fellowship with the church. And then lastly, set your mind on the things above, the heavenly things. And be encouraged by that glorious vision. Amen.